Butterfly Line podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Nate Bacon. Nate lives in Hamden, Maine, and is forging a unique career to become a legend in the Maine fly fishing world because of his family heritage and their unique history surrounding the Grand Laker canoe design and development. The story is fascinating and will always be of great interest to the guiding and canoeing community in Maine. The Bacon name has been associated with the Grand Laker canoe and guiding in Grand Lake Stream for over 100 years. People have said that the Bacon family was the first to come up with the very first Grand Laker canoe. Fast forward four generations and you'll find Nate doing the same as his ancestors did. Nate Bacon is a registered Maine guide for both fishing and hunting and also has a passion for carpentry and woodworking. Canoe building runs in his blood. Nate's great-great-grandfather and his great-grandfather guided their entire lives and in the off-season worked on the Grand Laker canoes. Nate is following in their footsteps to carry on the tradition and not let it fade away. Nate owns and operates Daybreak Adventures Guide Service out of the Grand Lake Stream region. He is enjoying the family life with his wife, Melissa, and their two children, Wyatt and Charlotte Joe. Nate enjoys upland bird hunting over his two French Brittany Spaniels, Scout and Tilly. Nate's work with canoe building has been celebrated a lot in the media as of late, and you may have seen recent television interviews with Nate working out of his shop, demonstrating his craft. He has a unique story to share, and I am delighted to have the opportunity to introduce the Flyline Podcast audience to my new friend, Nate Bacon. Nate, welcome to Flyline Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely, Nate. So I was given your name by one of your clients who uh, said that you had a really interesting background that we thought might be uh, great to promote on the podcast and that your family is deeply rooted in the Grand Laker canoe history. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, the Bacon name has been credited as being the first Grand Laker developed, I would say, um, in Grand Lake Stream. Um, and that was my great great-grandfather, Herbert Bacon. Um, everybody called him Beaver, and he named, well, he called all of his Grand Laker canoes um, Beaver-built canoes, um, the stamps that are up on the bow pieces from when he built them. And then when his son, Tim Bacon, um, built them, there was a stamp that says Beaver-built canoes right there, and um, we actually still have that stamp in our shop today. But uh, that's what they were called. And then Timmy was Herbert's son, and he built probably the most of them, most of the, the bacon, the beaver-built canoes over through his heyday. So, And when, when did your great-great-grandfather do this? Do you know? Give us a time stamp. So as far, as far as I can recall and as much as I've heard of things, so in the early to mid-1920s, um, there was a fella, and I can't recall his name right now, but um, from what I understand, he was actually a client of one of the guides in Grand Lake Stream, and he actually showed up in Grand Lake Stream with essentially kind of the first uh, outboard motor that people have seen in the area. And that prompted a few guides in the area to try and create this so-called Grand Laker um, to accommodate these outboards. And that was... Um, in the early twenties. And then it was Herbert who, what he did was he actually carved out a to scale model of, uh, what is essentially the Grand Laker canoe. Um, it was a one inch equals one foot to scale model. He even put little metal ribs and everything on it, carved it out in the winter of 1922 and 1923, and then built what is, the original bacon mold off of that to scale model. So you should say and see it. It's actually at the Grand Lake Stream Historical Society um, today, and you can go see it whenever whenever they are open. So I'd say mid twenties, um, nineteen twenty four, twenty five ish. That must have been an incredible endeavor to take on. He did, did. Do you know if he was a woodworker or a boat builder before that, or was he a carpenter, or do you have any skills? Um, yeah, so actually, so before the Grand Lakers came about, um, all the guides back then were running 20-foot double-ended canoes, and Herbert was actually building those canoes back then as well, so previous of um, 
the creation of oh, the yeah. Grand Laker, so, so to say. Um, and uh, from what I understand, Herbert actually owned a couple. What they would do back before the Grand Lakers came on was they, they would run steamboats and they would transport the, the, the clients and the guides with their double under canoes up lake and different places like that throughout the days and the steamboats. And Herbert, from what I understand, owned one, if not two of those. And he ran those and then he also guided as well. Well, I want to talk a lot more about the canoes because it's so much, it's such, it's so related to your, your, your history and your genetics and all that. But I also want to talk a little bit about you. Um, tell us how you got involved in guiding. So I essentially just got my guide's license more or less because it was a family thing. And I always just wanted to have it because most of my ancestors always had it. And um, I always kind of thought that it was just going to be a retirement thing. Um, so I got it right out of high school and um, just figured I'd always have it and just kind of mess around with it. And um did it a few times here, there, and just fell in love with it. And uh, next thing you know, it I'm essentially following right in Tim's Timmy's footsteps. So um, it's it's pretty incredible, really, and uh, I love it. When you got your guides license, Nate, tell us about the process. Did you go to a school, or did you do some studying on your own? Tell us about the getting getting your guides license. Yeah, I did. I, um, I went to, I took a class. Um, it was like a three or four day thing. Um, it was right at a hotel actually, um, down in Belfast. The classes were right there in one of their conference rooms down there. And, um, I went and did that. And, um, while I was doing that and before I took my tests and everything, I just picked as many people's brains as I could about testing and about guiding in general, just, just kind of dove right head head first and um, went for it. So I, l- like I said, I didn't think that it was going to be a full time thing so soon. At, at a younger age, I always thought it was going to be a retirement thing, just to kind of to carry on the tradition. And when I got older, um, but uh, turns out I liked it, and uh, apparently it must be in my blood because I can't get enough of it. So I'm always craving more. So. And when you took the test, uh, just for the listening audience, uh, getting a main guides license can be many things. It can be getting your recreational license. It can be getting your your fishing license uh, to be a main guide. You could be a hunting guide. You could be a sea kayaking guide, or you could be a whitewater rafting guide. And there's probably even others I'm not thinking of. But what were the what was the first license that you tried to to attain? Uh, so when I went to do it, um, I I went for my fishing and hunting at the same time. And when I went and tested for it, for some reason, I thought that once you tested and you passed your hunting and fishing, you automatically got your wreck. But apparently right there in that time frame, the, the, the criteria there changed. So um, essentially, I have to go back and get my wreck at some point. I had intentions of doing it right after I passed the other two, but um, I just never, I never have gotten the, t- the chance to go back and get the wreck. But right now I have just my, my hunting and fishing. Right. So not to keep doing that for the listening audience, but for the listening audience, a recreational guides license allows Nate to guide people on multi-day trips. And uh, that's probably not what he or I generally do. We do mostly uh, one-day trips or two-day trips where the people spend the night in a local hotel or at a local lodge or something like that. Um, so I've ne- I do have my recreational license, but a lot of people don't ever get it. And that comes out of necessity. Don't you agree? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I. Um... I, I kind of thought that I wanted to get it just in case I ever wanted to go on, say, a canoe trip or something like that along those lines. But it, it's turning it's turning into something now where I, I've fallen in love with the fishing all summer and then um, picking into the uh, bird hunting um, come this fall. So it, it's it, there's only so much time in the day to to be able in the week to be able to fit everything in. So got to kind of prioritize. So I, I think I'm going to stick with my hunting and fishing for now. Yeah, exactly. I, I did a few overnight canoe trips. And what I found is that all, although I love my clients, I don't love them so much that I want to sleep with them every night for a week. <laughs> and uh, I enjoy taking a little break from the guiding part of it and uh, not be expected to cook dinner and do the dishes late at night under uh, 
the light of a Coleman lantern. But I'm interested too, Nate, uh, uh, regarding your uh, your fly fishing. Tell me how you got hooked on fly fishing. Well, so fly, it's it's actually kind of come come and go. Um, when I was in high school, I had a friend that um, I played basketball with, and we actually went to the Volk school together um, for carpentry um, in high school. And we just kind of fell in love with, with fly fishing back then. And I, I was by no means any good at it at all, but we persisted through it and we just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And, um, we'd go on little trips every, every spring, you know, all around the state. And uh, we just always seemed to kind of merge back over towards Grand Lake stream. And since the family history and, me kind of being tied in with with Grand Lake Stream a little bit and knowing the area and being around there a lot as a kid um we just kind of always ended up going back there and then i've just always i've always enjoyed the the peaceful solitude of being in the that cold running water and standing there and and just uh it, it's almost like therapy absolutely and when you so now you know you're 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 an, you're an avid fly fisherman. You've become a guide. Did you start working for one of the local lodges in Grand Lake Stream, or how did your how did your guiding start? I did. Yeah, I did. So there's there's a bunch of lodges and sporting camps in Grand Lake Stream, and um, when I first kind of kind of got going and decided, I kind of helped out people and stuff like that a couple times when I first got it, and just kind of dabbled in it a little bit. But when I when I decided I wanted to do more of it, I went to all the lodges and all the sporting camps, and um, just kind of put my made myself available. And um, the one thing that I always told all the lodges and the sporting camps was, I want to be a guide in Grand Lake Stream or in and or the you know the state of Maine, but I don't want to be. Or I should I shouldn't say it like that. I, I I wanted I wanted to be able to commit to whoever I wanted to commit to. So what I what I told them was, I, whoever books me first is where I'll go. I'm not. I don't want to be biased. I don't want to burn any bridges with anybody. But the first person to call me for a date is where I'll go. And um, in the process of that, I actually got talking to a couple of the older guides in town and around and um. A lot of them, a few of them, were kept telling me to to work on building my own guide business and trying to be busy for myself to make to kind of prepare myself for my own fate, so I could control more of my what what I was doing. And that was kind of where the Facebook and the Instagram pages kind of came on, and kind of where I wanted to head was because because that whole clientele to be busy all, all summer that can take years to develop and, um, a quite a while to be able to get so many enough clients to fill in your whole summer, but for yourself. So you always need the, the lodges to, you know, to, to supplement and to fill in and to, to help out, to fill your summer in. So, um, that's just kind of how I went about it. And uh, that's kind of how I'm still doing it today. I'm working my hardest to try and get my own people, but, um, I, I still do a lot for all the lodges. I, I try and I try and bounce around a lot to, to help them all out as much as I can. So name name some of the places that you work with, some of the lodges that you work with, if you will. Uh so there's there's the two the two big lodges. I, I call them the two big lodges because they accommodate people for you know, they, they provide the meals and everything like that. But there's uh Lean's Lodge and then there's Weatherby's Lodge right in town. Um, guide for both of them a lot um and then there there's a lot of the they're not smaller lodges but i call them the sporting camps because they have the cabins that have the kitchenettes and uh you know they kind of they they kind of the guests and the clients kind of do their own meals breakfast and supper and then i provide and i prepare the lunches for those but there's like grand lake lodge there's chet's camps there's uh indian rock camps um, shoreline camps, there's, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna miss a couple and whichever ones I miss, I apologize if you're listening, 
<laughs> lodge owners, but uh, there's Grand Lake Stream Camps down on the stream. Um, there, there's a, a handful more that are right there. There's Flying Eagle Lodge that's down in Princeton, and then Long Lake Camps that's in Princeton too. They're just out of town. So um, guide for all of them. Love all of them. And uh, can't say enough good things about all of them. So being from Hamden in the winter and spending a lot of time at uh, Grand Lake Stream in the summer, do you do anything outside of Grand Lake Stream? Do you guide like smallmouth on the Penobscot or anything like that? Um, yeah, I, I have in the past. I actually, it's, it's funny that you said that because I actually have a couple days on the Penobscot River this year and that I would, I would, and I will. Um, the, the tricky part is, is just the logistic part of it of being in Grand Lake Stream all summer long and being able to, to pack up and get, uh, you know, to either come home or to travel over to say Lincoln or something to pick up somebody to do the Penobscot. It's just the logistic part of it is it can get to be not a pain, but it's just a little bit more work. And when I'm in Grand Lake stream all summer, it's, it's a little bit more. So I don't take a lot, but I'll always take, you know, a handful, maybe four or five to, you know, seven or eight days kind of on the Penobscot or, or it's usually the Penobscot. Cause it's usually helping out another guide that, uh, that either has a big party or they are already booked or whatever. So it's usually the Hobscot River right in the Lincoln to down in the Greenbush area. Usually that kind of stretch right down in there we kind of mess around a lot with. So tell us about your guiding season. When does it start and kind of what are you targeting? Yeah, so um, usually the – I call it the official start date is usually sometime the 1st of May to the middle of May. Um, my first day this year is – May 1st, actually. But usually the beginning of the year, um, you know, we're on the stream a lot, wade, wade fishing for salmon and brook trout. But you can, you can we can dwindle in a couple early season bass days in with that. And then come the end of May to the 1st of June, we kind of start hitting the bass a little bit more. But the salmon fishing is still good in the stream. And then through June, that's that's the heyday for the bass season. And we're, we're busy. That's kind of the busy, busy month. You know, out of the say it's thirty days, we can go, we can go twenty four, twenty five days right in a row without a day off. Usually in June, and um, that's kind of the big push. You can, we're usually targeting and and chasing the bass around, but you can still do pretty good on the stream that time of year. And then come July and August and September, you know, uh, we're you, you know we're bass fishing, or we can go perch fishing, or things like that. But it's usually, it's usually bass all through the summer. Um, and we're chasing the bass, you know, down the hill into deeper water. When the water gets warmer, we're kind of chasing them around, searching for them. And then come the end of September and then October, we're, we're back to either trolling for trolling for salmon or, um, on the stream, on the stream for salmon again, salmon through October. And then I, the, we have an extended season in Grand Lake stream on the stream to uh i don't know if it's october 20th or 25th this year but it's right right there somewhere so we have an extra yeah. say 20 days but well the the uh, tradition in maine is for the main guide to provide a shore lunch and that means different things to different people tell tell the audience what that means for uh, nate bacon's clients yeah yeah so the the shore lunches are kind of i i, I call them the highlight of the day but it's um it's a great it's a great break um you know you're sitting in these grand laker canoes for for four or five hours in the morning fishing all and you just you're everybody's so excited to be out and be fishing and and you know i i'm always excited every morning to go out and go fishing with them you know and, and show them show them what the beautiful places that we have in front of us that we get you know the opportunity to do this with and um you know just the lunch is a great it's a great break up throughout the day um you can get out and stretch your legs and we always have lunches on designated campsites. Well, not campsites, but lunch grounds, we call them. Um, there's always a fire pit and a couple picnic tables. They can sit down, they can relax, they can get up. They can even go fish off, you know, off the beach or anything while I'm preparing the lunches. And uh, the lunches are just phenomenal. It's, it's, it's great. And they, everybody's always amazed at, at what we come up with for, for, uh, for food out in the middle of nowhere. So it's um it, it's it's pretty special it's pretty cool give me uh i love i love to hear more about that nate tell tell us a little bit about your the kind of menu that you like 
sure. So, um, so if if they stay at like I said earlier, one of the bigger lodges, either Le- either Leans or Weatherby's, um, they those two places usually provide the lunches, and they get to pick that when they're having you know the dinner the night before or whatever. They'll make out the menu of what we cook them, and usually it can be anything from steak to chicken to pork chops to burgers. Um, it, you know any any one of them, and then we usually either boil or fry fry up some potatoes. Um, and then for like an, like an appetizer, if we, if we keep a fish or two in the morning, we'll, we'll have a fish fry before we eat. So there's, it's like a four course meal. So, you you know, we, when we show up, the first thing I do is I make the table and I get out, get out the crackers and the cheese and the pickles. And, um, I let them, they just, those are usually gone within seconds of getting to the lunch ground. But that, um, I get those out first, then you get the fish, fish going. If you, if you keep any fish. And then, then, like I said, the steak or, or anything like that, whatever they choose for the main meal um, with potatoes. And then there's always a dessert of cookies or brownies or a pie or anything like that. So it's a, it's a full four-course meal, I'd say. And it's, it's an experience for sure. It's, it, I always grin when people ask about them because it's, uh, it, it's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's that's great, Nate. And I I love cooking a shore lunch myself. I, it's just a nice time for the guide to take a break as well. Although we're cooking, it's it's a break from guiding, which is a, a different endeavor. But um, absolutely, yeah. And another thank you. Another question I had for you too was uh, related to just being a guide in general. I mean, we you know, we our clients, you know, they have a very high expectation level and whatnot. But sometimes things just go wrong. Do you can you think of a time uh, in your earlier days where you went out and just something that was out of your control happened? Uh, something you can share that would kind of illuminate the audience as to the difficulty. You know, motor didn't run or broke a fly rod. Oh, you, you got oh any yeah. stories like that? Oh it, yeah, I mean you, you're always. I mean, not not every day is going to be a perfect day. Um, I mean, you you certainly hope for that for sure, but um, you know, you you always have one of them fluke days where where you pick up your clients and you just, for some reason, you either just don't have a good feeling about the day or it's raining out or something along those day those lines. And you're just, uh, you're not, you're not regretting it, but you're just, it's just been a struggle from, from the start of the day and you get out there and for whatever reason you pick a bad spot and just for some reason the fish aren't there that day or whatever. And that is when, you better have some good stories to tell to make the day go by because um, it, it can be a really long day. And I have been really, really lucky that 95% of everybody that I've had my canoe and fished with, I would love to take them out again. It, it, for the most part, people, once they get out there, they're already on vacation. They're already having a good time. And you, it, you're almost entertaining, you know, in, in a way. And, um, it's just you just got to kind of keep that going and like i said you got to get the stories out sometimes and and uh some stories are good some stories are bad but you some days you just know and you know right off the bat too if it's going to be you know you can get out there and you can hit a spot and it's just a dud right off the bat and you just get a bad feeling and you just you're like oh it's going to be one of those days i'm going to have to bring out my bring out my my notebook of stories to to entertain, but, uh, I know I keep saying stories over and over, but it's, um, it, it can, it can be challenging, but, uh, that that's part of it. And that's the fun is of the whole thing. And I, I, I learn something every day, whether it's, I learn something from myself or I learn something from my clients and that's kind of part of it. So it, it it's, it's a, it's all a learning experience for, for everybody. It, it's, I wouldn't trade it for the world. No. And I, I say that a lot too, Nate. I mean, we're, we're, as a guide, you're a part bartender, part psychiatrist, part best friend, um, obviously fly casting instructor, fly fishing instructor. But uh, there's a lot of things that are out of your control as a guide, weather, you know, fishing conditions and those sort of things, as you, as you mentioned. But I, um, I think that as time passes, as the, as the sands of time pass through the hourglass, as they say, all those experiences that we learn from, both you know, positive and negative, we we become better guides, and an experienced guide is a good guide. Uh, it's not just about someone that knows where to go and what to do, but what to do when the times are tough. 
And absolutely, um, I, I think that as you continue to guide, you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna continue to find that it gets better and easier for you, and you're gonna fall into some routines that are effective. So, um, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to, we're, we're gonna talk in the second half of the show about the Grand Lakers and the construction of them and all that because that's so important. But um, you, um, when you guys are. Tell me what it's like to guide out of a Grand Laker before we talk about making a Grand Laker. We're talking about your guiding now. Like, does one person stand up and fish? Are you paddling from the back? Does anyone ever row the boat? Kind of just paint a picture of what it's like to fish out of a Grand Laker. Sure, sure. So um, it's definitely a different style of uh, of the way I go about it. You you know, you'll get, you'll get some clients that show up that um, – they're just uncomfortable off the bat, and I, and I don't I don't know if you'd ever make them comfortable in no matter what you were in, other than you know, what, say a twenty foot party boat or something. You you know what I mean? So so essentially so essentially, the Grand Laker, it's a twenty to twenty one foot. We call them we call them canoes because they're essentially a, a, a canoe with a square stern on the back, and then the guide is in the back paddling it or motoring it. And then you have your two two clients up in front of you, and once once you get used to a Grand Laker and get used to not only being a guide and paddling one and, and maneuvering one, but as a as a client and fishing out of one, they're they're so efficient in in the way that we can move along the shorelines and move in around rocks and how shallow we can get and. You know, it, it's it's a great setup for a guide because when you have your sports and your clients, I, I say sports and clients, clients, um, but you have your clients in front of you and say they catch a fish. All they got to do is swing their arm around and you're you're within reach with your net to get them. You don't have to do any walking. The clients don't have to do any, you know, they don't have to get up and like reach or walk to you to get the to to get the fish to you or you don't have to go to them. It's all it's all right there within reach. So it, it's surprisingly efficient going back to like the size of the canoes and stuff. The, the original canoes were a little bit on the smaller side, I would say. And, you know, you get a lot of the canoes nowadays that like you have some people fishing in, you know, the bigger fiberglass crafts that they don't, the, the newer, the newer, bigger canoes don't paddle as well. So, a, a, a lot of guides still like the old, the older original canoes because they paddle better. And, and, and like when I, like I said earlier in the month of June, we're, you know, we're cruising the shorelines for, for the bass and we, you know, we're, we're, us guides are paddling, you know, six, five, six of the hours out of the day. So something that paddles easy and gets through the water well is, so much more efficient and so much more better on the guide than than something bigger that doesn't paddle so good so to say but like the way the 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 clients sit it it all kind of depends on how stable they are on their feet you know um like i can like, like even with my older canoe um that's a little it, it's an, the original size it's obviously on the smaller side like i said but I've had a couple clients before where they were younger, younger people, and they were very good on their feet. They both stood up and fly fished pretty much all day, and we were perfectly stable. Um, I wouldn't recommend that because that's that's a lot going on. But I felt comfortable, and they were comfortable enough where we kind of adjusted for that. But most generally, what happens is the clients will either sit in the seats that are down close to the bottom of the canoe and fish from there. Or a lot of the canoes nowadays have what we call casting seats that are essentially forts that are bigger and wider that they can, they can sit up on and kind of get up off the water just a little bit more, but they sit down on them. That that's the ideal way to fish out of them. And people really like that and they're comfortable with that. So it doesn't take too long to get, comfortable with fishing sitting down like that but um it it can take a little bit of adjustment but once you get used to it it's it, it it's very it's very comfortable did that answer your question oh it, yeah you answered the question perfectly so what well, the answer really is that some people sit some people stand and you're working from the back and i i can tell you that when i transitioned from guiding uh in waders into guiding in drift boats one immediate advantage i had was all of my problems were within 15 or 20 feet of where I was, you know, 
if someone had a knot, someone caught a fish, uh, I was right there. And it turned into more of a team activity. It was not like someone was 100 yards up the river and you had to go up and help them and then come back down and help the other person out. All your problems were within 15 or 20 feet of where you were. And it just made it so that everyone was working together. And I think there's a there's a real benefit to that. And I think that probably I've I've fished out of a Grand Lake or only a few times, but I see that how that would be effective in the same way. Yeah, it, it's surprisingly efficient in how well everything kind of works and after people get used to it. And whether you're spin fishing, whether you're trolling um, or fly fishing, all of it, it's it's very adaptable and um, it, it, it's very enjoyable. Yeah, and they're they're a beautiful boat just to look at on the water. They're gorgeous. The shape of a Grand Laker is just great. But Nate, I think we've got to a good place to take our first break. And uh, when we come back from the break, I want to talk a lot more about building a Grand Laker and what goes into that because clearly you have learned a ton and you've had a lot that you've learned from your family and I want to hear all about it. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. This flyline flashback involves the birch bark canoe. Native Americans used the strong, lightweight birch bark canoes long before Europeans arrived. The French voyagers quickly adopted it while natives in turn adapted European tools to aid them in canoe construction. Capable of carrying heavy loads, light enough to be carried around river obstacles such as rapids by only one or two men, and made from readily available materials, the birch bark canoe helped make possible the unprecedented growth of the fur trade in the 17th and 18th centuries. Native Americans discovered that birch bark was light, waterproof, and strong. It did not shrink, so sheets of it could be sewn together. Unlike the bark of other trees, the grain of birch runs around the tree rather than parallel to the trunk. This allowed it to be formed into sophisticated and subtle forms that became the birch bark canoe. Birch bark canoes held heavy loads and kept passengers and their goods dry. They gave the natives and French who used them an advantage over those who could not obtain the canoes or the birch bark to build them. The British and the Iroquois often had to make do with canoes made of elm bark or with heavy dugouts, which were not nearly as serviceable. By 1720, heightened competition between the French and British, along with the Native Americans' growing demand for cloth garments, woven fabrics, and wool blankets, resulted in a large increase in the amount of trade goods moving west, necessitating larger canoes. The earlier canoes, which could carry around 1,750 pounds, were replaced by the Algonquin-style canoe, which carried about 6,000 pounds. These were best suited for Great Lakes travel, while the smaller canoes were better suited for easy travel. Main lakes and rivers were the highways and back roads to access hunting, fishing, and foraging of inland resources. The native tribes in Maine had unique designs, and they would migrate through the connected rivers and lakes using the birch bark canoe from the rugged Maine coast to their inland settlements. A traditional Abenaki canoe is built from one large sheet of birch bark collected from the trunk of a tree. Old-growth forests once contained trees that were much larger than birch trees are today. It is becoming more and more difficult to find the materials to build these canoes. According to the archaeological record, about 3,000 years ago, the stone tools associated with making birch bark canoes began to replace those used to make dugouts. Our indigenous tribes would portage canoes through these land bridges or store boats at various carrying places and allowed the native tribes to create canoe routes that connected the various drainage basins in New England and Canada. The birch bark canoe will always remain as an icon of the main rivers and lakes heritage, with many of the names of these places taking on a descriptive meaning. A few familiar examples are Damascata, meaning many alewives, Allagash, meaning bark shelter, Kennebunk, meaning long sandbar, Monhegan, meaning out to sea island, Pasadumke, meaning rapids over gravel beds. And now, back to the second half of our podcast. Well, welcome back, Nate. And uh, for the for the listening audience, a strongback is basically like a mold or a form that is made out of uh, strips of wood. And it has metal uh, that goes where the, uh, the ultimate ribs are going to be placed. And uh, your, your great-great-grandfather built one of the earliest Grand Laker strongbacks, and you still have that strongback. Uh, tell us about the built the boat building process, Nate. What's it you know from stem to stern, from beginning to end? How do you start a Grand Laker canoe? Yeah, so so essentially, um, you have to have 
what I call as a mold, but a strong back mold, um, essentially the same thing. But basically, you have to have the mold, and the molds themselves actually essentially kind of look like a canoe, but they're obviously a smaller version because the the canoe was built on the outside of those molds. And you, you essentially start it, the canoe upside down, so the mold is kind of like you see the bottom of the canoe and the mold is on the – you see the bottom of the – of the mold is on the top. Essentially you put, there's, there's little, little slots and, and keyways for you to put what is the inner gunnels on. And then you clamp those into the mold and then you steam and bend the ribs over what you said, the metal, the metal bands on the molds, those ribs go over and attach to those inner gunnels and you get through. And then once you steam and bend and attach all the ribs all the way through, you you what I call you plank it with uh, like quarter inch thick cedar, which is the same as the, what the ribs are, and you attach the planking to the ribs with tacks. The the tacks the metal the metal bands on the molds essentially help clinch over the tacks when you drive drive the tacks in to hold on the planking to the ribs. So at that process, you're essentially building the canoe upside down, and then um, once you get to a certain point of of planking the canoe, you take all the clamps and everything off the mold to let the gunnels, the inner gunnels, loose, and then the canoe will will almost pop off the mold naturally because everything's kind of under tension with the ribs and everything, kind of forcing it out a little bit. And then you flip it over and you kind of suck everything back together and then you can finish the planking and then fiberglass it and put the trimmings on what I call them, which is the outer gunnels, the seats, you know, the spray rails, if people want spray rails on them, and essentially the keels and stuff like that. So it's funny because you tell people when they ask the process and you say you basically start the canoe building it upside down and they, they have troubles grasping that they, they, they wonder why. But uh, once you see the process and see how the mold is, it's it, it makes sense. Yeah, and of course, the Native Americans used canoes. There's a, a lot of history with that, and they, they would make them out of birch bark, and they uh, would build them on the ground right side up. And uh, it was almost like the inverse. They'd build the outside, and then they'd start to put stuff on the inside. But the Grand Laker build process starts from the inside, working to the outside, and uh, Nate, tell us about how you source your 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 raw material. Where do you get your cedar from? Well, so uh, we if if I lived in Grand Lake Stream year round, Grand Lake Stream allows the the residents permits to be able to cut um, their their own firewood, and they they'd allow a permit to be able to cut. And that's how my great grandfather Timmy and Herbert. That's how they did it. Was from what I understand, Timmy would go out during hunting season and he'd either flag them or he would mark his trees while he was hunting of the ones that he wanted to do to use the ash and the spruce and uh, the cedars. He would mark them and he'd go and cut them in the wintertime and then bring them back and, you know, cut them up and saw them up and, and dry them and all that stuff. But um, the way that, that my father and I do it is since we're not year round residents in Grand Lake stream, um, we don't have one of those permits to be able to do that. So we essentially just contact, um, there's a couple small lumber, lumber yard, sawmills, things like that, that they, you know, they source local cedar and, um, local ash and stuff like that. So we, we kind of source it through that. And then, um, there's another builder in Grand Lake stream that we kind of bounce materials and stuff off of quite a bit that, you know, if he has something I'll get and I need it, I can get it from him. Or if I have something, I can either get it for him or vice versa or whatever. But, um, yeah, we kind of have to kind of have to source our stuff, our stuff out to be able to find it at, at local small places. Some of the, the big lumber yards and stuff like that usually can't get just what we want, but the, the smaller family owned places usually, um, can either accommodate and they can find it for us or they already kind of, there's a couple places that they deal with cedar a lot. And what they do is they know that there's a few canoe builders in the state and what they'll do is they will set aside all the clear cedar, which is what we need for ribs and planks. They'll set it aside and have, 
you know, like lifts of it, a few lifts of it for us and we can just go pick through it and grab it. And then it, it, it work it works out. So they, they kind of keep us in mind that way. And do you use uh, green wood or do you use uh, kiln dried wood? Well, so, so a, a lot of times like, um, like the ash and stuff like that, um, sometimes the ash will actually bend better when it's the, the greener it is. Um, it, it, it's actually a little bit more pliable. The, the drier it is, it sometimes it gets brittle and, um, sometimes it's really hard. I, I noticed that actually with the last canoe that I did, I had a few pieces of cedar that we have had in the, up in stairs in the barn for, I'd say my father has had it there for 30 years, maybe, maybe not quite that long, but quite a while, 20 years, I'd say. And it just, it just felt brittle. You almost knew before you even steamed it or anything that it wasn't going to be a really great piece of wood because it's, it's, it was actually so dry that it almost dry rot almost. So yeah, a lot of times we kind of, kind of have to deal with what we got, but a lot of times we just air dry stuff for, you know, for a year or two. And usually that's dry enough where we can make things happen, but still be pliable and work, work with it enough where we can usually make something out of it. So. So, I mean, there must be a lot of tools. I know the tools have probably changed over the years, but let's talk about steaming. Tell me how uh, to explain your setup for steaming in terms of like what you what the construction of your do you have a steam box or do you use PVC? Parts? Yeah, so uh, we actually have a, a steam box and um, funny, funny, you should say that we um, we have the original steam box that uh, was made with the original canoe that's actually sitting right in the shop still today. And we actually have used it this winter to steam some other things, but um, we built a new steam box this winter because this new mold that we made, the ribs are just a little bit longer than what the old steam box would fit. So we, we essentially had to build a new steam box, but we just replicated the same exact setup, just a little bit longer of what the old steam box was. But we have, we have essentially like a little tub that we soak the ribs and anything that we want to steam in. That's just got just enough water in it to make everything, you know, to soak everything. And then the steam box is right yep. beside it. And that's, that's just propane fired is all that is. Um, Timmy, my great grandfather and Herbert, they, um, they had a wood stove and they put like a kettle or something on the wood stove with a pipe running up to the, to the wood box, to the steam box there. But, yeah, so the steam travels through the steam box, and is there a critical temperature that you think that uh, ash and cedar bend at? Do you have a thermometer or anything, or how does that all go? No, no, we um, it, it might be beneficial if we did, if we did, but we don't. We um, we've kind of gotten the gotten the recipe down where it works for us, where we you know we let the ribs soak for for even a day or two. Um, and then we, you know, we got, we got kind of a time frame. once the steam box gets hot, how long is usually pretty good, um, to let the cedar steam and then to cook, we call it cook to, to let the cedar cook. And then the ash, you know, you got to let it cook a little longer. It's, it's hardwood. It's just a lot harder. Um, and it just takes a while. You let, we let it soak a, a few extra days to just get wet, to soak up some of that moisture and then steam it, um, for, for quite a while, but we, it's all, it's all kind of by feel because, because sometimes we'll throw a bunch of ribs in the steam box and we'll wait, you know, we'll wait an hour for, for what we think is long enough for it to cook. And we take one out. And for some reason you can tell right off the bat, when you start to bend it over that mold, if it's going to be a good one or not. And then you either, you either break it real quick or, or you just, you don't have a good feeling about it and you either set it back in the steam box for a few more minutes or, or grab another one or whatever. But uh, it's a lot of kind of trial and error and just how it all feels. You kind of get a little, a feeling for it, so to say, after a little while. And it's, it's not a wicked big scientific thing, but it, it, it I don't know if it should be or not, but it, uh, it we make it work. Well, we'll make it a little wicked big scientific for a second. Uh, wood has <laughs> lignin in it, and different species of wood um, have different levels of lignin. Or uh, and, and the lignin, think of it as kind of like the glue that holds the uh, fibers of wood together, and the fibers are really just the growth cells of the wood. And so yep, steaming exactly. breaks down that lignin. Temp t 
yeah, temporarily, and it allows Nate to basically shape it, and then almost like you would shape a recurve uh, bow, like a like an arrow bow, yeah. archery bow, and then once it cools back to room temperature, its memory is yeah. is totally lost what its original shape was, and then it takes on the shape that you've put it in, which he's bending it over that strong back and holding it in place with clamps, and then as it cools down, it stays in that position. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, that, no, exactly. That's that's definitely, as I would say, the the more scientific version of it. But yes, that it, yeah, essentially, exactly. You're yeah, you're almost cooking the memory out of it, and then re re-identifying how it wants to be, more or less. So, Nate, I know that in like back with the original Old Town and some of the early early canoe makers, they used to use canvas cloth. Uh, but it's not as durable as modern fiberglass and epoxy and whatnot. Do you know in your own family history, like the transition, I'm sure probably the first one was a, was a canvas that your great, great grandfather made. Do you ever, do you have any notes or anything as to when they switched over to using modern epoxies and fiberglass? Um, you know, I, we, we don't have any, uh, any, anything written down of when they kind of transitioned. I, I do know that my father, built a canoe with with my great-grandfather Tim in the early 80s and when when my father built that they canvassed it and it's actually still canvassed today it's um from what I understand that canoe is the last canoe that Timmy ever completed um was in I'd say 1984 ish um but that one's canvas but to to think about it so it would be my grandfather which would be my father's dad greg um who was timmy's son um he had a canoe that i believe tim built when greg was in high school so that would have been like in the late 40s and um that was canvas for a long time but um i think my grandfather either ruined the canvas one too many times and tim got sick of repairing it or whatever but that's fiberglass so and i don't know what year they fiberglass that and um there's there's one canoe builder i I don't really think he's building any grand lakers anymore um but he always he he still to this day i think within the last couple of years if he was going to build a canoe he he still canvassed it uh, my father and i we can either canvas or fiberglass um we almost barely ever do any canvas work anymore just because people don't want the maintenance of it or they they want something more durable or, or whatever the reasons are. But um, we have the ability to do either or, but we I don't remember the last time we messed with messed with a canvas. We've we've done a couple canoes that had canvas on it that we fiberglassed, but um, we haven't recanvassed anything in a while. So. You know, canvas is just that. It's 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 fabric and then fiberglass of course is just that. It's it's fiberglass. And fiberglass is incredibly uh, abrasion resistant. And so I could I would there would be no reason to ever go backward and use the older technology unless you were just doing it for, you know, historical purposes or you were doing a repair on an old boat or something like that. One question we have too Nate is, okay, let's say you and your dad uh, embark on a new canoe build. How long does it take to build a Grand Laker? Um, that's kind of hard to say as well. Um, I would guess it would be anywhere between maybe a hundred to 120 hours worth of work. Um, and, and like I, and it's probably stretched between say two or three weeks because there's some days, you know, on, on the, you know, the rib day when, when you're bending ribs, I mean, that can take you six or seven hours to bend the ribs for that day, depending on how everything's going. But then you can also get to a time where you're putting the fiberglass on and you're on the second, you know, you're on the filler coat of fiberglass and you'd get it done in an hour, you know, so so, some days, some days are days. And then some days are not much of a day at all. Um, So it kind of, it can get stretched out to you know to say two or three or even you know a month long depending on um on the conditions and kind of how much you get done in a day and what you um what you accomplish i guess so to say um throughout the day but um a lot of times it's good to have 
you know, multiple things going because, because just because of that, you know, it, it, it'd be great to have two canoes going at once because then you could, you could switch, you know, you could, you could work on one and get that one caught up and then you could work on the other one to fill out the rest of the day, you know, and that's, that's the kind of the tricky part in the shop because there's a lot of times like, like just, I said, you get one done and then you have to have another project going on. And that's kind of where a lot of the smaller projects have kind of come in for us to kind of just fill out the days throughout the winter. Yeah. As my friend Tom Petty used to say, the waiting is the hardest part, but um, <laughs> that's right. yeah. So Nate, the, 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 the tools that you're using now are probably quite different than the tools that you were using. Your great, your great grandfather and your great, great grandfather were using. I mean, I'm guessing you guys have a planer that you're reducing down to get to that quarter inch thickness in certain parts and pieces. What other modern tools are you using? Or are you still using any traditional tools? Well, it's it's funny that you said that. There, uh, we actually had a, uh, a a TV a TV channel come out uh, last week and um, and and do a little little write up on us, but um, and the canoes and everything, and that they got into the same thing. But it's funny because, um, you know, I I don't remember much of of my great grandfather Tim, but my dad does, and dad just remembers going into that shop back when Tim was still working on him, and he said that there was you know there'd be forty handsaws lined up on the wall, and every single one of them had a different tooth, you know, a different rake and a different tooth configuration on it, and you know, hand planes and and he really didn't have a whole heck of a lot of tools other than like a table saw and a bandsaw, you know, and I think. From what I understand, there was only maybe one or two of the canoe builders back then that they had like a planer, like an old fashioned planer in town. And I think I, I could be wrong, but I think like a lot of them canoe builders would they they'd get together and they just they'd spend a few days and they'd all use that planer. They'd go to that guy's house and they'd bring all the material and they'd use it and use that machine and then they'd go back to their own shops and they'd start working away. Um But nowadays it's a lot, you know, I I use a router for a lot and, um, you know, just the little handheld quarter inch spindle routers are invaluable for a lot of different things. And we have a planer, you know, we have, we even have like a surface sander that you can run through. That's essentially the same thing as a planer, but it's sanding instead of planing. So you can take off a lot less of material than, than the planer, you know, and we have, you know, a big old bandsaw and table saws and, drill presses and all, you know, a lot of things. But I say that we still, my father and I call it the Timmy hammer, but we still have the hammer that Tim always used when he used and built his canoes. And my father and I, we still use that daily, that hammer. And it's, um, it's kind of special to, we call it the Timmy hammer, like I said, but, uh, we go and we grab that and, and it's like, he's, he's still working with us. So what was, what was the first, how old were you when you took on your first canoe build? Oh, um, there was, there was quite a few years there where, um, where the, the canoe building really wasn't going on. So my father built his canoe with Tim back in the early eighties. And then the, the mold essentially, so let me, let me backtrack a minute here. So it, in 84-ish, my father built a canoe with Tim. And then I think my father may have helped Tim with a couple more right in that area, maybe before, maybe one or two after. But then Tim started a canoe in 1988. There's a there's a write-up in a, in the Bangor Daily News and stuff about his last canoe and, and how he wasn't going to do any more. But um, he never finished that canoe. And actually, not to get off track, but um, we still have that canoe. It's not, it's still not finished today, but I think we're going to finish it and give it to my son, but, um, to be, get back on track. Um, so my dad kind of had parts in a few of them. And then there was a big time frame there where, um, my parents and I, and we lived here in Hamden and then my grandparents lived in Hamden as well. And when Timmy was done working on canoes, he gave the mold to his son, who was my great grand, my, my grandfather, sorry. Um, and it basically sat up in a barn for, for years and years, for a long time. I was in middle school and high school and, you know, I had other priorities and I was racing dirt bikes and I was doing other things. Um, but when I got out of high school, I I was into the carpenter work and I always had a love for the, 
for the finish work side of it. And I always knew that the canoes were always there and I was always admiring them. And, you know, I've been around them my whole life, but right after high school, I kind of got back into it. And then it, I don't remember quite what year, but some, at some point my grandfather passed the mold down to my father and I, and then that's when we moved it back over to the shop, which is at my parents' house. Um, the mold ended up over there and that's kind of when my father and I got back into dabbling with them and working on them. And that's when we built, when we built mine was a little bit out of high school, um, a few years after high school. And I kind of been working on them, dabbling in them. And then, um, ever since, and, uh, just every year get busier and busier working on them, you know, helping people out with working on theirs. And then, um, it just kind of exploded from, from there. I don't, it, it kind of evolved all from, um, doing the finish work, you know, in carpentry and finish work and having a love for the finish work. And then I always was, I, I always, it, it apparently is in my blood because I've always gone back to the canoes and it's just has, has worked out where I can, I can, I could do that now all, all winter long, essentially. So, so who are your customers, Nate, who buys a Grand Laker from Nate Bacon? Uh, well, honestly, honestly, anybody, anybody that wants one. Um, but uh, you, you know, you you get a lot of a lot of the guides right in Grand Lake Stream. Uh, you know, the, we're all fishing out of them, so everybody wants one, or everybody wants needs one worked on. Not everybody is you know you know is is inclined or willing or even want to work on their canoes, whether it's a big major project of fixing ribs that get broken, or just as something as simple as putting fresh varnish and paint on it. It, there, there's so many of them around and there's only, uh, there's only a couple of us that are really pushing to work on this stuff and, and, and are interested in working in this stuff. But as, as you know, essentially people that see the Facebook and Instagram pages get interested in it. And I'm, I'm involved with a lot of, I, I don't know if I'm really involved, but I'm a part of a lot of canoe building Facebook pages and people chats and stuff like that. And people get interested and they, they like the history of them. And then when they find out, you know, there's, there's a link there that you really get interested. And then, and then there's a lot of clients as well that, you know, you take them out and they're like, Holy cow, this thing is awesome. And they just, it grows, it grows from there. And they, um, it kind of just explodes at that point. But um, yeah, a lot of different, the different little realms that, that uh, people, can get attached to them for. So, yeah, I worked at a fly shop for years and we had a builder in Oakland that was making Grand Lakers. And basically we promised him a purchase of a Grand Laker every year and we'd buy it and we had a year to sell it and we sold every one of them. And oftentimes it was, it was not a guide. It was someone that just wanted one for their own recreational purposes. And uh, do you guys like supply trailers with them or covers? Speak to that a little bit. You know, when somebody contacts and, and starts asking questions, you know, they, um, you know, depending on what they're interested in and what they, what they want. But basically we start out as, as just the canoe and then, you know, but essentially these canoes, you need a trailer with it. So a lot of times we'll go out and we'll find, and there's a couple dealers around that have brand new trailers or you could find, we can try and find a used trailer, but those are hard as well because they're, these canoes are a little longer, so they're harder to find a trailer that fits them properly. But uh, a lot of times it's just as easy to to outfit the canoe with a trailer and then they can do their own outboard or whatever they want. But uh, yeah. So does I mean, does it I know like with drift boats, we we have a canvas cover that goes over them. Do you does, is a Grand Laker covered? Yeah. So the, so they're not essentially covered, um, but there's there's a couple um, like canvas canvas shops that uh special they don't specialize but they they do canvas covers um and there's there's a couple of them that i recommend and 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 if and if i build a canoe for you and that you want a trailer and a cover and everything just you know what i mean that's all part of the part of a package you know what i mean it's just just how much do you want to spend and how much how far do you want to go on the whole deal um but that's all things that either i can accommodate or or you can do on your own type of deal so excellent let's talk about your bird dogs because i know that you have uh, oh. a couple of uh, french britney spaniels yes and and you're also a, a you're also a hunting guide nate tell us a little bit about what your uh what your expectations are for this coming year are you going to try to get out in the woods with clients this year or what's going to go on with that yeah yeah so this year i uh i'm looking to 
pick up just I, I don't I, I'm not gonna go full out because I'm only gonna have one dog um, hopefully ready for fall but I, I I am picking up days um, for for pretty much just the month of October but uh, I had I had a bird dog back years ago and I absolutely loved it I never guided with it but uh, I, I loved it and I loved the dog and I just I just grew a love for for the upland hunting part of it. And then I got out of it for a few years because, you know, the, you know, the dog got old and I, you know, had to, the dog passed away, but, but, but you, you know, I, there was a few years there. And then once I started kind of getting back into, back into the guiding thing and, and decided that this is what I want to do for a living summers, um, the whole, it got my wheels turning again to get another dog because that just essentially extends my, my season for another month, you know, basically. Um, and, and I was missing it. I, I wanted to get back into it and I, I'm just a dog lover in general anyway. So it, um, it was just kind of a natural fit to get back into it and it kind of, it, it's all worked out. So. Yeah. And I, I don't trust people that don't love dogs. I, uh, I'm a, we're, you know, we're dog lovers. I have two English setters and I don't actually really guide over my uh, my dogs for money, but I do take out a lot of friends and also fishing clients. Uh, but tell me a little bit about the hunting. In, in do you do you hunt in Grand Lake Stream area? Or are you planning on it? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, it's just going to be right there with um, uh, with with the same with the same lodges that I uh, that I fish for. Um, there, you know, essentially, it's the same the same lodges that I mentioned before. Um, they all can have. Um, bird hunters come in and they uh, they either bring their own dogs or or they don't and they you know some of them get guides and some of them don't and um, but yeah it, it's essentially going to be right out of Grand Lake Stream in that area right there still so um, out of the same lodges so I've developed a great great relationship with all the lodge owners and at least I think and I hope I have but I uh, um, but yeah yeah it's going to be right in Grand Lake Stream so I'll be there a whole other month. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I mean, my my only advice would be if if you guys, if you and your your wife love dogs, get another one because as a guide, it helps to have a backup dog, um, you know, a few years apart, so that when one gets older, you're you're not missing a step. You're you've got another dog coming right up through the ranks. We have right now we have uh, Peppers five years old and and Crickets uh, nine months old, and so when Pepper gets up to ten or eleven, she starts slowing down. We'll have another five year old dog working right with her in the woods. So, just advice. No, no, I was just, I, I totally agree. I, um, and, and I kind of, I, I might've gone overboard a little bit with, with the bird dog thing. But when I got, when I got the dog that will be ready for this fall, um, it, it, he was, he was actually my first Brittany that I got and I, I did and the family did, and we just completely fell in love with him. And he showed, you know, he, he's such a good dog. And, and we, like I said, we just fell in love with him right off the bat. And I, and I knew that I wanted to do the bird hunting guiding deal. So I kind of, I kind of, I didn't jump the gun, but we actually got another dog that's just a year younger than, than the first one. So we have two of them now. Yeah. So she'll be, she'll just be a year behind. Perfect. So I, essentially I'll have two of them for a few years. And then in my mind, for whatever reason, in my mind, three is going to be, I'm hoping the magic number for for guiding because then you can rotate three in and you'll always you know you'll have one that's kind of getting older and slowing down a little bit but then you'll still have the two that are hopefully a little bit younger and spry and then you, you kind of always rotate three and you can you know you can pick up a lot of days that way and, and not completely wear out your dogs so to say but um i think we're going to wait another three or four years before we get the other one get these two up and going and and, and make sure everything's good but uh but yeah, we we got two of them right now. So, so after this season of only having one, hopefully next season, I'll have uh, I'll have two on the ground running. So, should be good. Oh, it sounds like you guys are on the right path. And you know, I wish you the best with the, uh, the development of your guiding service and your your, your canoe building and, and your business. And uh, native, someone needs to get a hold of you. What's uh What's the best way for them to do that? Go ahead and do a do a show. Yes. So. So as of right now, I, I just have the Facebook and the Instagram pages. And um, if you just go on, go on either of those and just search Daybreak Adventures Guide Service, um, you, you'll, you'll find me on both of them. Um, I'm, I'm working on trying to get an, uh, a website up and running. Um, 
at, at some point, but that's kind of on my, my next thing to do. I don't know if I'll have time to, to really sit down and do it till next winter, but, um, that that's on the list for sure. But, uh, on, on either Facebook or Instagram, you can either message me through there or, and I think on Facebook, it's got my email addresses right on there. So you can email me, um, and phone numbers too are right on, right on them as well. So, um, I respond well with, with, with any way, either private message on either one of those or text message, phone calls, emails, anything. I, um, I usually get them fairly well. Sometimes it might take me a, a little while, but, uh, I'll get back to you at some point. So. Yeah, and what we'll also do for the listening audience is if you're interested in learning more about uh, Nate Bacon and his canoes or maybe hiring him as a guide for the day or maybe you want to go out bird hunting with him in uh, Grand Lake Stream area, uh, we're going to put up le- uh, links on our podcast uh, on the website for uh, Flyline Podcast to connect you with uh, Nate. And Nate, we really appreciate you taking your time uh, out of your busy night and, and just taking the opportunity to share with the audience. I know that uh, Grand Lake canoes have such a rich history, and knowing that your family is continuing to, uh, you know, work in that same industry that your 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 ancestors have is remarkable. It's interesting. I find it fascinating, and uh, and I know a lot of work goes into building one of those canoes. And uh, I give you a little tip of the hat for that. Well, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, they are a labor of love for sure. But uh, boy, don't I love it. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline Podcast is a product of Riverside FM. <laughs>